to the Garden Church Podcast. The following message was previously recorded at the Garden Church in downtown Long Beach, California. Forgot about the two services. Um, but that's okay because I used to study improv. And improv... <laughs> Improv um, is the art of, of um, spontaneous creation. It's where you show up and you perform without preparation or practice. And I actually tra- traveled in high school competing against other improv groups um, uh, and, and studied it. I really did. In fact, um, what I loved about improv is that you can just show up. One of the rules of improv is show up. You just show up. The sec- another rule of improv is that you throw yourself in fully. So if you're performing a character, if someone says, uh, come here, my little dog, you, don't, um, you, you jump into the dog. You jump into that scene. In fact, I actually auditioned for Juilliard in San Francisco when I was 17. And um, I was performing a Shakespearean monologue. And the seven or so judges interrupted my Shakespearean monologue and demanded I perform as a monkey. And um, I felt quite humiliated in the moment because there I was auditioning for Juilliard. And they expect you at a whim, at a moment's notice to jump in into that next character and be fully immersed into the monkey. And that's what I tried to do. I didn't get into Juilliard, so I don't know what happened. Poor Shakespeare. God had other plans. Um, But the number one rule in improv is to just say yes. Just say yes. Um, One of the um, famous... uh, Writers, she wrote a book. Her name's Patricia Madsen, and she's kind of written the book on 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 acting. It's a f- philosophical book, really, but it's called Improv Wisdom. And she says the best improvisers go with the flow of whatever their partners are doing. The worst improvisers reject their partners' offers and try to mold scenes to their own tastes. Saying yes is about supporting someone else's dreams and ideas. It lets you share control. Instead of trying to keep it. This morning I want to talk about discipleship. I want to talk about saying yes to Jesus. So if you would go to Luke chapter, four, uh, chapter 14, verse 24, 25. And I think improv is going to help me with the um, text this morning. Luke 14, verse 25, Jesus, I I was um, planning on teaching in chapter 20 today, but I really wanted to focus on this. God really compelled me this morning to share this with you because it's such a seeker friendly message. Verse 25, large crowds were traveling with Jesus and turning to them. He says to them, if anyone comes to me and does not hate Father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life. Such a person cannot be my disciple. Jesus has a massive following and he says to them, if you don't hate your father and mother, your wife and children, your brothers and sisters, yet even your own life, you are not worthy or you cannot be my disciple. And he's going to say you can't be my disciple three times in this teaching. And the first one has to do with your primary identity. They found um, the first century found their identity in their family system. You found your work, 
your purpose, um, your value, your your security, your future was found in who you were related to. You were identified by your family members. And Jesus says, if you if you hate, uh, if you do not hate your father and mother. Now, he doesn't mean hatred. He doesn't mean hate. It's a rabbinic phrase to describe if someone prefers their father and mother over Jesus. If you prefer your wife or your children over Jesus, you're not worthy or you can't be his disciple. In other words, if you love your family, your identity, your status, your security, your future more than Jesus, you can't be his disciple. Got it? And whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Now, we think of cross as this grand act of love and sacrifice. If you can't sacrifice your life and follow me, um, you can't be my disciple. But the the first century um, followers of Jesus would have heard it differently. When you think of the cross, think of utter defeat. Think of complete failure. Think of humiliation and shame. He's He's really nailing in the coffin. He's saying, you have to be willing to carry a life of failure for my sake, of shame for my sake, of embarrassment, of humiliation for my sake. That, if you do that, then you're worthy of being my disciple. Just, this is not an easy message to follow. And it seems like we actually teach the opposite these days. We being the church and those that are in the power, in the authority of the church. We tend to make it very easy, very user friendly. <laughs> and maybe I'm just speaking on my experience, but it's almost like just show up on Sunday, um, put a couple of bucks into the offering can, believe the right things, and go on living your merry way. But this message is really hard to swallow. Would you agree? That if I prefer anything else other than Jesus, I'm not worthy to be his disciple. That if I don't take on a life that's, uh, 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 that is complete sacrifice, or you could say if I don't have a life that's fully surrendered to Christ, I'm not worthy. That's hard to swallow in our consumeristic culture, in our culture that says the church has to compete with entertainment. That we need to put on a good show. The pastor better be funny and good looking and handsome. I'm all those things. But the pastor, just kidding, for those of you who are new. Yeah, that's right. I mean, in all seriousness, I struggle with massive insecurity and massive fear. If I'm not willing to put that down and walk in obedience to what Jesus has invited me into, I'm not worthy of being his disciple, right? So the church is in a consumer-oriented entertainment society, and we think we have to compete, and we think it's about just showing up and, and taking, but Jesus is saying, you have to give your life to follow me. And, and he goes on in the story, um, in this, and he tells two parables. He says, uh, suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Won't you first sit down and estimate the cost to see if you have enough money to complete it? For if you lay a foundation and are not able to finish it, everyone who sees it will ridicule you, saying this person began to build and wasn't able to finish. He says, count the cost of what it means to be my follower. 
He goes on and he says, or suppose a king is about to go to war against another king. Won't he first sit down and consider whether he is able with 10,000 men to oppose one coming against him with 20,000? If he is not able, he will send a delegation while the other is still a long way off and will ask for terms of peace. He says, look, the way the world works is that you calculate the cost. You calculate the risk. In everything else, we go to the grocery store and we, we, we live on a budget. Most of us, some of us live on credit. Don't do that. Seriously. But we live on a budget and we calculate, can I afford to buy these groceries at Trader Joe's? We operate on a day-to-day basis with understanding that if I drive my, my car too far, it will run out of gas. I don't want to look like a fool on the freeway who runs out of gas. Do you know what I'm talking about? Jesus is saying, Jesus is saying you do this everywhere. You have to do this as a follower. Because I don't want to start something that you can't finish. He doesn't want his disciples to live in a way... It isn't what he's inviting them into. He says, calculate the cost. Follow me. If you, um, do you have what it takes to follow through with your commitment to him? Jesus is saying, calculate the cost to follow me. And if you follow him, it essentially might lead you to difficult places. It might lead you to challenging places. And do you have what it takes to finish it? To, to remain faithful to Jesus in the end, despite what opposition, what circumstances come your way. This is what it means to follow Jesus. He says this um, in verse 33, in the same way, those of you who do not give up everything you have, you cannot be my disciples. Those of you who do not give up everything you have cannot be my disciple. The Greek word for everything is everything. All your stuff, everything you are, if you don't give up. And the the phrase give up is better translated if you don't say goodbye to everything. If you don't free yourself is another translation. If you don't liberate yourself from everything, you're not worthy of being his disciple. That's another hard thing to swallow. He said salt is good, but if salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? Um, it, is, it is fit neither for soil nor for manure heap. It is thrown away. Salt in first century, its primary use was for preservation of meat. And it is um, also something that, it, that the, um, the Israelites were called to be in, in their world. That they were a nation of salt. And what that meant is they were to preserve all that is good and true and beautiful in culture and for the rest of the world. And if it's not preserving the truth of God, what good is it? That's what Jesus is applying to the church and those who are following him. It's just not good. And then he says, whoever has ears to hear, let him hear. In other words, he doesn't care. I think he does. That's a little too much. He's saying some people are going to get it and some people aren't. This is the mystery of the kingdom of God. For those of you that have tasted and seen for yourself that the Lord is good. Those of you that have experienced the radical power, the transforming power of the gospel. For those of you that have experienced the spirit inside of you. That recognize that you sell everything to buy that field that has that priceless treasure. When you get that, that's the only response. The only response is to give up everything. The only response is to prefer Jesus over everyone else. The only response is to calculate, do I have what it takes? To move forward. That is the only proper response for those that will be a follower of Jesus. Are you with me? 
So Jesus says all of these things. This is what it means to be his disciple. A disciple, um, discipleship requires uncompromising sacrifice. It requires everything you have. It's costly. Following Jesus does not, does not mean you will have material wealth. If you follow Jesus, you might not drive a Cadillac. <laughs> There are, there are people that are teaching, if you follow, follow Jesus, He's going to bless your life. And that equals prosperity, finances, wealth, comfort, security. Are you with me? If you follow Jesus, um, uh, he, uh, sorry, following Jesus won't make your life easier, safer, or more comfortable. For those of you that are searching, I just want to lay it out there for you. Following Jesus doesn't mean you go on living like you once lived. Following Jesus doesn't solve all your problems. It only solves one, that you now get to spend the rest of your life, the rest of eternity in right relationship with God and figuring out what that means. We so often think it's about believing the right things, but it's about following the right person. Following Jesus might mean he leads you to hardships. Following Jesus might mean he calls you to go where you've never wanted to go in the first place. Following Jesus might mean you literally sell everything you have. Following Jesus might mean that you end up hanging on a cross and it's at the center of God's will for your life. Are you with me? This is what we're called to. Following Jesus will cost you your life. And brothers and sisters, this is why Jesus talks about that. You can only really live... If you follow Jesus, he gives us life that is life. The life will produce all sorts of great fruit, but we have to confront the lies that we live in on a regular basis because the world will offer us other ways to live. One that shrinks our lives to our comforts and appetites and pleasures. But Jesus confronts us and shows us another way to live. He models another way to live in his kingdom of God. Are you with me? I want to share just a couple of thoughts because I've been thinking about Jesus and what he modeled. Let me share this with you. I'm going to go through a couple of verses just to show you what his ministry looked like. Because so often we're taught that we have to be successful. We have to be um, the best. We have to be all these things in the world because the world is showing us another way to live. Do you know what I'm talking about? More money, more power, more friendships, more likes on Facebook or whatever it is. It's like this world continues to, to show us an alternative, alternative way to live. But Jesus, at the end of his life, has only a few hundred followers at the end of his ministry because he's still living. He only has a few hundred followers. His close friends leave him. He's rejected. Check this out. In his ministry, this is just the resume of Jesus. Uh, Luke chapter 4, verse 29, he preaches his first sermon. It says, They got up, drove him out of town, and took him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built in order to throw him off the cliff. First sermon. They're going to kill him in his hometown. Go to the next verse. Jesus has a massive following in John's gospel. I think it's John 6, 66. And he preaches a sermon about eating his uh, flesh and drinking his blood. And he says, um, from this time, many of his, his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. They deserted him. A bunch of followers desert Jesus in John's gospel, right in the early of his, uh, part of his ministry. I love this next one. So there he is in John chapter 8. The, the Jews answered him, aren't we right in saying that you are a Samaritan and demon possessed? Samaritan is the worst word you can call someone in the first century. It's a derogatory word. And they're saying that he's demon possessed. Aren't we right in saying you're crazy? Jesus is misunderstood and called names in his ministry. Go to the next one. 
While he was still speaking, a crowd came up and the man who was called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them. He approached Jesus to kiss him. Um, maybe the, I didn't put the next verse, but he betrays Jesus with a kiss. One of his twelve betrays Jesus. Go to the next one. Um, uh, Peter is outside and Jesus is being uh, questioned by the Sanhedrin, by the, by the priest. And it says, Peter, his close friend, he denied it. Woman, I don't know him, he said. Peter denies knowing Jesus. His closest friend of three denies knowing Jesus. Go to the next one, and this has got to be my favorite. The, then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. Go to the next verse. Do I have it? Oh, man, you have to read this one. Sorry. We'll go there. Um, Matthew, at the end of Matthew's gospel, it's, it's just brilliant. He's resurrected from the dead. Like the worst thing you could possibly do to someone happens to him and then he's still alive. And this is what happens in Matthew chapter 28. It says, um, then uh, it says, verse 17, when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. He's been raised from the dead. So Jesus is deserted. He's questioned. He's opposed. He's, um, he's betrayed. He's denied. He's mocked. He's beaten. He's murdered. And yet people still doubt him. Jesus kept doing what the Father was doing. He kept moving forward. He kept saying yes to what God was inviting him into. He kept being obedient to the end, even if that meant failure, even if that meant obedience to the cross. Are you with me? The point of the reason I'm sharing this with you is so often we miss the fact that Jesus lived a radical life, but the world didn't see it that that way. They didn't understand him. They missed it. And obedience, I believe, is the key to life in the kingdom. Obedience is about heading in the same direction despite what comes your way. Obedience is about doing what you see the Father is doing. Obedience is about being open to what God's doing, despite criticism and opposition and rejection and and suffering. And so often we want to live our life without suffering, but that's exactly what teaches us to be like Jesus. Because it's the way of the cross. I guess this is what I really wanted to share with you this morning. I want to share a little bit of my story. You see, I believe if you want an adventurous life, all you have to do is keep saying yes to Jesus. I think that um, if you keep saying yes to Jesus, he will make you a pioneer in, in a massive or a giant frontier. If you keep saying yes to Jesus, he will just show you a grand adventure that you get to be a part of. Why don't we say yes? Well, I think a few things. We're afraid. We're afraid of what people will think. We're afraid of failure. We're afraid we'll get it wrong. Insert whatever fears you have. We're distracted. We're not listening to God. Most of us aren't really listening to what God might have for us in our lives. We're not not living a life of obedience because we're not actually saying, God, what do you want me to do? Some of you are like struggling to hear God's voice and you never open the word of God. And I always joke about this, but all seriousness, if you want to hear God speak, read this. He'll always speak. We're distracted. You know why we're not being we're not living in obedience and we're not saying yes to Jesus because we're too busy updating our status. I know that's a, that's a conviction for, for me and some of you. There's nothing wrong with social media at all. But I think there, it's it's getting to a point where we're going to miss out on life because we want everyone else to see it. Those who have ears to hear. <laughs> we're lazy. We're distracted. We're not listening. When I was 17, I rejected the faith. I grew up in the church. 
I, I left the faith. And I went to Santa Barbara, I went to UCSB actually, and I studied theater, and I partied. And I partied, and you know what I did? I was, I was so angry at God that I did what I called reverse apologetics. I tried to prove that God and Christianity wasn't true. And I actually was pretty good at it. I convinced a few Christians to leave their faith with me. Um, and uh, it, was a, it was a really dark time. I left, I mean, I, I, I partied, I, I scheduled my week based on when there was a, a party of some sort. And I lived in Isla Vista. And I remember this moment. I was walking down Del Playa, I was partying, I was probably um, completely drunk. And I was uh, drinking with a red cup, I was holding it up like this. And I was outside. And I came across this house and they're passing out cheeseburgers. And later I found out they're called Jesus Burgers and it was a Christian house. And this woman came up to me, a young girl, who I knew was a Christian. And she didn't condemn me for drinking and being underage. She walked up to me and she said, hey, um, make sure when you're walking on the streets that you turn your cup upside down. Because otherwise the cops will, will arrest you or give you a ticket for being drunk in public and being a minor. And I was confronted. Completely convicted. And God ambushed me. And I literally heard God's voice inside of me say, say, what are you doing? And I immediately came back to Jesus. I ran to our apartment. I live with uh, two drug dealers. That was my first experience at UCSB, moving out of the house, um, moving from my parents' house into an, um, a dorm. I had drug dealers for roommates. It wasn't helpful. I fell to my knees and I said, uh, I gave my life back to Jesus. And I became depressed for the fact that I missed out on witnessing to a community. But I kept saying yes, because I think it was rooted in this improvisation rule that you just just go where life is. Just say yes to what God puts in front of you. So I ended up at a Vanguard University. I didn't even know it was a Christian university at the time, but I was passionate about God. I had I'd been saved from that former life. And for those of us that have a story like that, that know when we were saved, like that moment that you could say, that's when I chose to follow God. Some of us, we grew up with it and it's not as defined and that's okay. But some of us have that moment said, that's when it became real for me. That's when it became real because I just kept saying, yes, I went to Vanguard. I started going to a church called Rock Harbor. I started listening to God's voice, learning about this Jesus that saved me. And all I wanted people to know about was the Jesus that I experienced. The Jesus that took me from UCSB and brought me to Vanguard. All these Christians at this university, and it's not everyone, but people are just complacent. I was on fire. I started uh, with a group of friends who were like, hey, let's go to Skid Row and serve the homeless. And it became this massive ministry for Vanguard University. We just said, let's just go there every week and pass out food and talk to people where they're at. And it was just like one thing after another. We just kept saying yes to opportunities. People got saved. People got out of the streets. It was an amazing time. Um, I was at Rock Harbor one Sunday night, and this youth pastor said, hey, we need volunteers. I was like, I'm a college student. I have time. I'll serve. For four years, I served at Rock Harbor uh, Youth. I helped write the curriculum. It went from 12 kids to like 300 kids in that, that time period. And I walked with a guy who was 12, all the way up with a small group from 12 to their freshman year. Um, so sixth grade to their freshman year. And th- three of those guys are feeling called in the ministry. It's absolutely amazing. Nothing that I did. I just kept saying yes. And then I'm sitting at Rock Harbor one Sunday and I see myself on stage. I have a vision in my head. I'm just, I have a great imagination. It's not a vision. And I felt God say to me, uh, you're called the ministry. But I saw myself preaching with a guy named Mike Erie. And I left acting. And it was the hardest thing to give up. Because when God called me to ministry, I wrestled with it. In fact, I met Bill that way. 
I said, Bill, you're the guy that people talk to at Vanguard who decide whether or not they're called to ministry. And he spent an entire year, year trying to convince me it wasn't. And now he shares, his, we preach together. Um, but here's the point. Um, I left that whole life. And it was like literally leaving. It was like surrendering everything I dreamt about. It was think. you know, it was the hardest thing thinking about what I would tell my drama teacher. What would I tell my classmates when you're voted most likely to be famous or whatever? It's like those those voices in your head that keep you from doing the very thing that God wants you to do. Do you know what I'm talking about? And so I just kept saying yes. And then I, I get on staff at Rock Harbor and I'll never forget this. I was so blessed to have a job. <laughs> I would do anything Rock Harbor said. I, w- I was literally, I mean, I remember uh, one, we had a weekend conference right before I went to India. And I, I got there at 4 a.m. and I closed the church at like 12 and I had to sweep up the stuff because the janitors have, uh, had already come and left. And I remember saying, God, thank you. Thank you for this beautiful church that I get to serve. That you put in my life because this is now my story. I just kept saying yes. And then I went to India. I heard God say, plant a church. We moved here. And that's a whole other story. But that story of planting the church was leaving Newport, leaving comfort, leaving security in my own life. With my wife having a heart condition. Leaving all of that to just say yes to the opportunity that's in front of me. And every time I've said yes, despite the fear, despite opposition, despite my insecurity, despite my doubts. I've only seen God's goodness, even in suffering. Because that's what it means to follow Jesus. I have a friend who was uh, a lawyer in Orange County. She became a partner, very successful, made tons of money. She has two kids. Um, but she started serving at this ministry for kids that, uh, and families that live in motels. She grew up living in motels. And um, she was a lawyer and she was, make, she was helping with legal advice for this nonprofit organization. And what happened is uh, over time she just offered more and more help. She, she would do fundraisers for them. She would give them um, legal advice. She would do all sorts of things. And um, she eventually was asked to be on the board. So she was serving on the board and she serves on the board at the church. And, and she's uh, this very su- successful lawyer. And then one day God's saying um, a, a job opened up to be the director of this this um, nonprofit, and she heard God say, go for it. You have a law degree. You are a partner. You have a family to care for. Leave all that behind and do it. And she did it. And now she spends her life helping kids and families that live in motels. She gave up everything to follow Jesus to a place that doesn't make sense. Just say yes. You can say yes to that phone call. I have another friend, and um, she, her story is fascinating. She's, she's homeless at one point and an addict, and now she's sober. She's married. She has an um, amazing husband. And they are a fascinating couple because they've just said yes to God along the way, and their business has got, you know, become really successful. They, uh, they just kept saying yes. They left Rock Harbor with us to help plant this church, and they served a community group leader. They served on our elder team, our initial startup team. They just kept saying yes to the opportunities. And uh, as we've been talking about evangelism, as we've been talking about what God's doing in our church and being here, God put it on our heart to evangelize this neighborhood. So she's like called some friends. Uh, one other person went with her around the neighborhood to evangelize. And this is what they did. Obeying God's voice, they said they went to the neighbors and said, um, uh, what do you need in this community and what do you need personally? That's how they started evangelizing. 
They just went around meeting the neighbors, saying, what does this community need? They talked about after-school programs, classes for the parents. They talked about all community environment. They talked about all sorts of things. And then they ran into this one woman who said, personally, I need some baby stuff. I'm going to have a baby. I don't have a community of support. A couple weeks later, this woman in our church saying yes to that led her to putting on a baby shower for a stranger because that's what God does. When you keep saying yes, sometimes God's going to call you to leave your family. Sometimes God's going to call you to leave your home. Sometimes he's going to call you to leave your job, your career, even if you got an education in that. Sometimes he's going to call you to get up on a Saturday night to knock on some doors, to do door-to-door evangelism and show up with what that person needs because that's what disciples do. That's what we do. That's what it means to be worthy of following Jesus. I believe that there are ministries to be released in this room. I believe that many of you are not saying yes to the thing that Jesus has put in front of you. Many of you have yet to say yes to Jesus being Lord of your life. And the offer today is not come to Jesus and have a better life. It's come to Jesus so that you can live. And the offer today is find a new frontier. Some of you need to say yes to quitting habits that are destructive in your life. You know what they are. Some of you need to come to the cross this morning, confess your sins, and take communion as a symbol of what Jesus has done for you. Some of you need to say yes to a ministry God's called and put on your heart. Some of you need to say yes to going to meet that neighbor, to texting that friend, to forgiving that family, family member. We've got to open ourselves up to what God's trying to do. Thank you for listening to the Garden Church Podcast. For more information about the Garden Church, visit thegardenlb.org.